Hi, everybody. Uh, here we are, another edition of the Tom Cowan, Dr. Tom Cowan Show. Uh, or it may be called the Conversations with Tom. I actually like that better. Um, and uh, today I'm honored to have my dear friend and colleague, Sally Fallon Morell. <clears throat> and I was telling Sally, I, you know, usually in the introductions, people say, I went to, you know, Duke and then I studied this and, you know, I don't, I don't really like that stuff. I didn't like going to Duke and <laughs> I, don't, I don't tell people about that. So here's my introduction to Sally. And I, I like to say, if I get anything wrong, please correct me. So we're talking about 25 years ago and I happened to read an article in a magazine called Spectrum, which is no longer around as far as I know. And <clears throat> I had been, you know, a doctor for years and did, you know, basically studied food and like I've been doing it for a long time. <clears throat> and I read this article and I had the unmistakable thought in my mind, something like, damn, this person knows more about food than I do. And that really sort of pissed me off <laughs> because I didn't like that. But anyways, I don't remember who contacted who. You, I remember this very well, but go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so one of us contacted the other and then we ended up having about an hour discussion while I had a patient waiting in the waiting room <laughs> or in the exam room or whatever room. And it, it reinforced my original notion that this person knew more about food than I do. And I luckily got over myself and said, we should talk. And then the next step was you actually came and I think your yes. first public uh, mm -hmm. lecture was at our place mm -hmm. in New mm -hmm. Hampshire. Yes. And we right. decided to write the fourfold book. And then I went, went and visited and one of the things that really struck me was I had been interested in this book on um, fermentation by Steinkraus, I think his name was. But it was very expensive, like $500. There was mm -hmm. only like 10 of them in print. Mm -hmm. And you actually had the book. <laughs> and, and turns out it wasn't such a great book. I mean, it was okay, but yeah. it was more sort of theoretical than I had hoped. Um, and that started my journey in nourishing traditions and wasn't that far from what I was doing on my own, but it definitely uh, revolutionized my eating as well as how you have really revolutionized and changed the American culture. And there's very few people who have changed it in the way that you have. I mean, I tell people, the reason they have grass-fed meat and pastured eggs and lard and kombucha and fermented vegetables and bone broth, and I'm probably missing some, organ meats, it's really because of, of you and the Weston Price Foundation and nourishing traditions. So yeah, with that, uh, please correct me if I missed <laughs> anything, but I am honored to have you as a guest. Well, thank you, Tom. The story of how you contacted me. So this book came out in 96 and the guy from Spectrum was the first person to interview me. But you have to understand in writing this book, I was not getting any support. My uh, family just kind of tolerated me and they thought I was crazy and yeah. a silly book. And 
And then I came home and there was a message on the answering machine that Dr. Cowan would like to speak with me. So I called and spoke to your receptionist and I said, Dr. Cowan's probably busy, but just tell him that I'm home now and he can call me when he wants to. And she said, no, no, he wants to talk to you right away. So that's how that conversation happened. And you, Tom, were the first person who I, I gave me unqualified support for what I'd written. I hadn't wow. really received that before, you know, just another book out there. So. Yeah. And the landscape has changed and it's, it's not just nourishing traditions. I think nourishing traditions came out at the right time. Yeah. People were seeking, you know, what is a healthy diet? And the story I just told you earlier, um, I have a friend or had a friend whose job in the Eisenhower administration, one of the things they asked him to do was figure out what kind of foods to put in the bomb shelters in case of a nuclear attack. What, what did we need to survive? And he went to the whatever health agency it was and asked them, well, what should we put in the bomb shelters? And they didn't know. <laughs> they couldn't tell me what to put in the bomb shelters. So, you know, there's just been a lot of ignorance about food. And I think we're on the uphill slope now. We yeah, reached yeah. the bottom with all the processed foods, <laughs> cereals and everything, and people were getting sick, but the doctors couldn't answer the question, well, what should I eat, doc? Yeah. And, you know, just there's so many things. I remember a debate of, you know, it, it's, it's, it's partly a process of, of understanding things. So you know, there was a debate on whether heart disease is caused by eating fat or not eating fat. And I remember this and, you know, the fact of the matter is it was very clear to the person who was the vegan advocate. He eloquently described how in 1920, there was essentially no heart disease in this country. And I was astounded that the interviewer didn't ask him, how many vegans were there in 1920? Because I know the exact answer to that, and it's zero by choice. Yes, and how many, uh, what were people cooking in in 1920? They were cooking in lard, and yeah. there was no heart disease. And the health, the health foods were butter, eggs, and cream. Yes. Right? I mean, that's what farms kind of tried to save up so they could make some money and sell their eggs and cream to right. people who wanted and, and they knew, they knew that was a healthy breakfast for children. Yeah. Growing children. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, we have just come out with a new book, our third, <laughs> and the craziest one of all, I think, called The Contagion Myth. Maybe the best one, who knows. Um, what I would like, if you're okay, is to, I think this story a few months ago, I think you had written an article about something to do with COVID. And I think you sent it to me and I said, I don't really think this is right. Yeah. And my sense of it was you, you heard my response and thought, I don't know. I mean, Tom said a lot of funny things, but I don't know if I get this one. And I think you've uh, transitioned a little bit from that since then. Well, the article was, and it's still up there on my blog, uh, eating for a healthy immune system. And at that time, to me, a healthy immune system was uh, what's going to protect you from viruses and bacteria, right? That's what people right. think is a healthy immune system. And you said, this isn't right, Sally, but you can go ahead and publish it, but it's not right. 
Well, then you've, we discovered, you discovered and pointed me to the talks of Andy Hoffman. And it was just like the clouds parted. Uh, no one has proved a virus. Uh, viruses are actually these helpful exosomes. And I realized, I've often said in my talks, we've had a complete paradigm shift in this country about bacteria. You know, the old, I'm sure you were taught in medical school, bacteria are bad and they attack you and they make you sick. And now we know that bacteria are friends. The only time bacteria are bad is under bad conditions and then they'll produce toxins, but the bacteria themselves are not bad. So then uh, I realized, well, this is the same thing with the viruses. The viruses are good. These, these exosomes are helping us. And they appear when you're under the stress of toxins, especially something new in the environment. And they help the cells communicate, hey, we've got a problem here. We need to make an adjustment and so forth. So that uh, really opened my eyes. and. Um, I think I've told you sometimes I'll wake up in the morning and the articles they're complete in my head. I think we don't listen enough to what's in our heads when we wake up. But so I wrote the article is coronavirus contagious. And just about the same time you were giving your talk that went viral, well that article went viral too. I think it was oh, really? 200,000 times. Uh yours got the millions, mine got the 100,000s. And uh, that's when we decided, you know, we need to put all this together and do a book. So essentially, uh, I mean, it, it, this sounds almost weird to have to say this, but basically you were confronted with some information that contradicted the way you had thought before, and you simply just followed the facts. Well, that's what you have to do. Uh, you have to, well, oh wow, this is this is different than I thought, but it makes sense. And then, so then immunity means something else. And right. basically you and I came to the uh, policy statement, I guess you'd say, that what, what causes disease, it's either deficiencies or poisoning. That's what makes us sick. Right, and so, starvation or poisoning. Yeah, starvation or poisoning and deficiencies are a type of starvation. Right. So the then it's, uh, to then you say, well, what is a healthy immune system? And the healthy immune system is an immune system, is a, a way of dealing with these toxins. You know, a good, you know, for example, vitamin A, we always said vitamin A is very important for your immune system. Well, vitamin A is the number one vitamin for dealing with toxins. So it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, in fact, as I'm saying now more and more, I actually question whether we actually even have a quote immune system. <clears throat> what we right. really have is, hopefully, anyways, is an efficient detoxification mechanism. Yes, and one of the best chapters in the book is the one you wrote on the immunity. And you had the gall to say, well, there's no disease that we become immune to. Uh, we can get those diseases again. And a perfect example is smallpox. Now, there was a superstition that milkmaids uh, got cowpox and that made them immune to smallpox. And we knew they were immune to smallpox because they had such beautiful skin. So they never got smallpox. And the doctors of the day said, this is just a, a, a silly 
peasant superstition because we've seen people get smallpox over and over again. So uh, this disease that is kind of the quintessential example of something you get immune to, you don't get immune to it. Right. And so why didn't the milkmaids get it? The milkmaids had daily access to the world's healthiest food, which was raw milk. Yeah. They were very healthy and very protected. And I think you, you pointed out also in the book and probably other places that this is not, this would not have been unfamiliar to Weston Price. Exactly. Uh, he talked, the one, the big disease in his day was TB. Right. And that was considered to be either, was either genetic or it was caused by this TB bacillus. You know, when doctors don't have a, an explanation for what causes illness, they blame it on the three G's, germs, genes, and God. So this was <laughs> first genes and then the germs. So, um, which is kind of ridiculous because only one out of 10 people who test positive to this bacillus gets TB. So it can't be the cause. And they're called latent. Uh, yeah, <laughs> latent they TB. have words for it. Yeah. And, and a price was really emphatic. He said, this is the root cause of TB is a malformation of the lungs. It goes along with the malformation of the facial bones and the teeth. And when the lungs are start to degenerate because they're not, you know, really healthy, then the bacteria arrive to clean up the dead tissue. And they're blamed, just like we blame cholesterol because it's always there, especially around blood vessels that are healing and everything. Do you think Price was actually aware, because really what you're talking about, if you want to call it something, is terrain theory versus germ theory. Yes. So you're essentially describing that in this case, the terrain of the people who get TB were people who were maybe fat-soluble vitamin deficient, they had <clears throat> resultant deformities of their skeletal structure, their formation of their jaw and actually even though it's harder to like document this because we can't see it they maybe even had deformities in their lungs resulting that's what he said he thought it was deformities in the lungs uh, i don't know if price was aware of this debate between terrain and and the bugs it certainly went on for a long time and you and i have been looking into pasture and his notebooks and he Pasteur was the inventor and promoter of the germ theory. Every, every disease was caused by a specific bacteria. That's what he insisted on. And there was not a lot of agreement of, about that at the time. Most doctors did not agree with this, but uh, um, Pasteur really pushed it in spite of the fact that we know from his notebooks that he was unable to prove it. Uh, he wrote privately in his notebooks. He, he could never make an animal sick by just giving them the bacteria. He had to make it virulent and he made it virulent by what he called passing it through other animals. So he would mix it with some kind of antiseptic or toxin or poison and inject it into like say a rabbit. And then he would take the spinal cord of that rabbit and he had all these methods for drying the powdered spinal cord. And then he'd eject that into another rabbit and he did that several times. And that's how he made what he called virulent anthrax or virulent rabies. And basically he was just creating poisons that definitely made these animals uh, sick, but it wasn't just plain old anthrax or rabies. 
Right. So I, I think you wrote about this in your last blog that you actually uh, really went through the story of this of uh, Pasteur and anthrax. And yes. Maybe you could share that a little bit. Okay. So um, he Pasteur said the anthrax was caused by this bacteria, and he was challenged to do this demonstration at a place called Puy-le-Fort in, in France. And his colleagues thought he was crazy to accept this challenge because they had not been able to demonstrate this in their laboratory, but he accepted it. They thought it was- If you say this, you mean the ability of pure anthrax spores to make an animal sick? Well, what he did was he wanted to show that the uh, vaccine would protect them against what he called anthrax. So he went and he had 75 sheep that he, um, vaccinated and 75 that he didn't vaccinate. And then three weeks later, he injected both groups of sheep with what he called anthrax. And all the ones not vaccinated died and all the ones who were vaccinated didn't die. Now he'd never gotten this to work in his laboratory, but he got it to be 100% with all 150 sheep. Yeah. Well, yeah. we know he knew how to make the 75 unvaccinated sheep die. He, he basically poisoned them. Uh, well, he created this, what he called virulent anthrax by passing it through, I think he used guinea pigs for the anthrax. So he basically passing. put some poisons with the spore, passed that through an animal, yeah. took some of their tissue and maybe with spores in it, poisoned it again. And who knows, he may have added some other poison. He was very under, he was really under pressure and the whole world was looking at him. Yeah. And, and we don't know what he injected into the vaccinated sheep, but there's no question that he cheated because he started producing this vaccine. He made a lot of money on the vaccine and the vaccine didn't work. And his desk just piled up with letters from people saying all my sheep died the day after we gave them the vaccine. So the vaccine died out, uh, they stopped using it, but so did anthrax. Anthrax has just gone away. It's now considered a very rare disease. But at the time, it was a, a, a very serious uh, economic problem for <laughs> farmers. So why did it go away? And uh, the, what I am proposing, it was the sheep dip, uh, because the sheep dip in those days was powdered, uh, powdered arsenic. Yeah. And so when they gave it to the animals, they got this disease. It looked identical to arsenic. The lesions, the symptoms, everything were identical to arsenic. And sometimes people got it because they were mixing the sheep dip and sometimes other animals got it because they were also dipped in this. And I, I wrote to a friend of mine in France, I have not heard back from him. I said, has anybody in France figured this out? Because the French knew a lot about arsenic. The best-selling novel in mid-century France was about a woman who poisons herself with arsenic and that was Madame Bovary. So the French really knew what arsenic poisoning looked like, and they knew about it, and nobody seemed to make this connection. Yeah, we yeah. still get some cases in third world countries where they still use arsenic for leather tanning and things like that. Right. So in some ways, it's, it's sort of parallel with the polio story, where yes. the polio yes. story had a lot to do with lead arsenic poisoning of the crops. And then DDT. And then DDT spraying, and, and we... Some of us even remember running behind DDT trucks when we were young because it was this sweet-smelling gas. Yeah. And that was, um, I remember that growing up in Detroit, and Detroit was one of the 
centers of the largest polio outbreaks in, the, in history. Interestingly, when they did a virological examination of the outbreak in Detroit, only 49% actually had any evidence of any virus. So 51% didn't. And they just. And what were they calling virus? We don't know. Yeah, what were they calling virus? We don't even know. That. Right, right. Yeah, uh, this whole polio thing is really seared in my mind because my youngest brother, who's about two and a half, I came home one morning and he was in the middle of my mother's bed. He'd shrunk to half his size. Wow. I'll never forget seeing that. And my mother was in tears and she said, the ambulance is coming. She said, I don't understand this. <clears throat> we were just at the pediatrician yesterday for his polio vaccination and the doctor said he was in perfect health. I've never forgotten that. And I, you know, I have always made the connection with the polio vaccination and my brother there just uh, like, and he did recover. He did recover, but I've never forgotten that. And his symptoms started after the vaccine. Yes, yes. Yeah. You know, I had a, a friend who wrote me the other day that he actually ran into Jonas Salk at a dinner party, mm -hmm. who's the inventor of one of the most famous mm -hmm. polio vaccines. And he asked him something about it, and he said, um, well, it turns out that all of the polio in the last 20 years have been a result of my vaccine. Yeah. So he actually knew it. Sabin, who was um, basically the discoverer of the other polio vaccine, is on record as saying that the vaccination has had no effect on mortality rate or morbidity rate in any, any country where it's been used. So. And they also said that they had their hearts in their mouth every time they gave a child a vaccination, a polio vaccination, because they didn't know if he'd end up paralyzed or dead or what. Yeah. All right, so we go from that to your uh, real area of expertise, even though I think you got pretty good at this other one. Um, but that is, um, so, you know, we're, we're in a health challenge now. Um, people dispute how bad it is and whether the numbers are inflated and all this stuff. But it seems like there are at least some people getting sick Strangely and sick, yeah. It's a weird sick. Yeah. And we described the you know the hypoxia and the fizzing and the hyperinflammatory, which all look like symptoms of you know radiation poisoning combined with glyphosate and starvation and all that. But I haven't heard anybody um, bring in this sort of food component. So for instance, in our book, you describe the relationship of cholesterol, cell membranes, and these symptoms. And you describe the relationship between zinc and what foods have zinc and how that might play into this. And I wonder if you could describe, um, you know, what should people be eating? <laughs> so I and think why, that, you know, yeah, the, the one thing that we learned uh, when we were writing this book, we contacted um, Jerry Pollack. Yeah. Who is the water expert? And, and Jerry is the one who has revealed how water structures itself against the hydrophilic surface. And our bodies are full of these hydrophilic surfaces, cell membranes, tissue membranes, and so forth. And they are, the water structures itself against these surfaces, sometimes only five or six atoms thick. 
but these uh, structures, the structured water is like a wire. It's conducting electricity, it's conducting information, and our whole bodies are like a fine mesh of wires because of the structure of the water. So the question is, how do we get really robust, um, uh, robust, strong hydrophilic surfaces, smooth hydrophilic surfaces? And I come back to my favorite subject, which is saturated fat. So the saturated fats, uh, they pack together because they're straight, they pack together like logs and they create the really nice uh, impermeable cell membranes, impermeable unless you've got some kind of uh, channel there or something, and uh, good strong hydrophilic surfaces. So that it's like having really good insulation on your wiring. And that's what we need in this age of just uh, electrosmog. Just, we're just surrounded by, think of like living in a trash dump. Yeah. That's what our air is like with all this, you know. So in other words, would you say it's accurate to say it's a bit like a copper wire that everybody knows that if you have an exposed copper wire, you're, you're you know, first of all, it's not safe and you're really asking for trouble. Uh, so and it shorts out and uh, electricity gets wasted, really. Yeah. Wasted. And it's very inefficient. So anybody who makes wiring puts a very robust layer of essentially rubber tubing around the copper wire. Right. And essentially what you're saying is the saturated fat is the rubber tubing. Yes, yes. And it acts copper, like the rubber tubing. And the copper wire is more like the coherent water structure which exactly. then, because it's protected and, and coherent and safe, it's allowed to essentially become the electrical system of the body. And, and it's not it's easily not. disrupted. And so what's been going on for the last 120 years, uh, we, or 100 years, let's put it like that, we have been told over and over not to eat saturated fats, to eat the industrial seed oils, which are highly unsaturated. And I remember Mary Ennig saying to me, these seed oils, what they do is you end up with floppy cell membranes. And so they're, they, are, they are permeable, they let stuff through that shouldn't be let through. They just don't work. Your cell membranes don't work. And she said, who knows what the effects of this will be? Well, I think we can very well postulate that the effects will be a lot of sensitivity to electricity and to dirty electricity and to electromagnetic frequencies and so forth. As well as other toxins, I'm sure. Like oh, yes, because those membranes are there to keep stuff out, uh, keep a different electric potential on either side. Um, you know, they're kind of the, the architecture of our tissues. Right. So essentially the tissue, in, you know, I, I, I think I, we made the point that like, you know, a lens in the eye, it's based on the function, which is to be transparent to light. So that's a certain, the, the, the membrane or the, or the cholesterol and the proteins, they organize the water to be transparent in that case. Yes. In other in cases, case, like the liver, they may have a different, they create a different structure because a different function is needed. 
And you've mentioned cholesterol. So along with saturated fats, uh, the cholesterol is very important in keeping those cell membranes waterproof right. and, and robust and secure. You know, it's interesting too. I'm sure you remember Uthi Ravenskoff. And one of the things uh, he wrote about was the protective effect of LDL on what he called um, infections or microorganisms. Yes, yes. A lot of times when I read it prevents you against infections, how I translate that myself into saying it protects you against toxicity, which then becomes an infection. And he actually used the word endotoxins. Uh, he actually he actually didn't say it protects you against bacteria or microbes. He says it protects you against the endotoxins that are produced by these microbes. So a strategy of lowering your LDL, which is essentially, you know, like a vegan diet or and statin drugs, is a strategy to make you more susceptible to quote infections, which means really toxicity and yes. endotoxins. Yes, exactly. And that's it's interesting that the first symptoms of this disease are flu-like symptoms, a dry throat, fever, uh, which that's that's what toxins do to you. And yeah. you start to have a fever and and then a, it's very interesting that this disease is characterized by widespread clotting in the body. It, apparently, the iron, and wouldn't iron be disrupted by electromagnetic fields? Of course it would be. Uh, it seems to be pulled out of the hemoglobin, and the hemoglobin trans travels through the arteries, but it's not delivering oxygen anymore. Right. And at the same time, you have a lot of free iron, and free iron, as we know, is extremely toxic. And yeah and does all sorts of terrible things, especially in the lungs where this is happening. And one of the uh, scariest things is the autopsies of the people who definitely had this disease. Um, they don't even look like lungs anymore. They are so disrupted. Right, so this free iron might be causing uh, or be part of the reason for this hyperinflammatory destruction of the tissue. Yeah. And I think it's very interesting that so many of these patients report a fizzy feeling, like, like you've touched an electric wire or something. All right, so we've got raw milk butter, grass-fed butter, lard. What else should we be eating? <laughs> well, I also talk about broth, because broth, of course, gives us a lot of glycine. And I did ask Stephanie Senoff about this, who's written about the detrimental effects of glycine because the glyphosate gets into the tissues that have glycine in them and replaces it. And there's yeah. some very important lung surfactants that contain glycine and the um, glyphosate will get in there and then they, they won't work. And I said, what is the best protection against glyphosate? And she says, lots of broth, lots of broth. Wow. So you have plenty of glycine, uh, so if it does get disrupted, there's more that you can uh, bring in. And of course, broth is our best source of glycine. So just to get very practical about it, do you see any reason to do fish broth or chicken broth or beef broth or pork broth, or does it just matter the quality of the animal and the amount of gelatin? It? I, uh, I think basically probably doesn't matter unless you are treating a thyroid condition. 
then I would say the fish broth is absolutely the very best thing for you. Uh -huh. But I think any kind of broth, it's all glycine, no matter what, <laughs> what animal it is. And the quality of the animal is extremely important because if that animal's been eating, uh, you know, uh, genetically modified feed full of glyphosate, then that'll be there. And right. you want to be taking in even more with your broth. So, uh, and I think we, you said we wanted to touch on how to protect yourself. What to stockpile if you have, you know, if we're going to have food shortages. And I think number one is to make that food chain as short as possible. So, and we said in the book, everybody should have a farmer or have a farm. Doesn't mean you need to own a farm or married to the farmer, but you need to have a farm or farmer close by where you can get uh, a lot of your food. All right, so <laughs> fats, we've got broth. Um, so how about organ meats? So, you, you know, you could make the case that organ meats are maybe the most nutritious, you know, highest in vitamin A, but they also have a lot of iron. And so is there a downside or is that just fine for everybody? Or are there some people who should or shouldn't eat it? Or what would you have to say about Well, that? I would really say we need to eat liver a couple times a week, one way or another. We've got, you've got to figure out how to get liver in you because liver is the A, the D. If it's poultry liver, it's the best source of K. It's your iron, it's B6, B12, all the minerals. I mean, liver is a sacred food and it's a highly protective food for your immune system, whatever, whatever that may be. And so um, my preference is chicken liver, chicken liver pate, but can be beef liver, liver and onions. Um, it can be desiccated liver, it can be liverwurst. And the Europeans are much more clever at making awful taste good than we are. Yeah. Yeah. We can't really get liver sausage here, or sausage with liver in it. But are there other organ meats that people should try to eat or is it Well, just yes, if you can get them, if you can get them. Now, when I was writing Nourishing Traditions, I probably was living in the best place in the world to get organ meats because we had what they called the social Safeway. It was a Safeway for all the embassies. And they all carried these things. You could get brains and sweetbreads and everything right there in the meat case. Now, they weren't necessarily pasture raised, but we weren't quite thinking in those terms in those days. So I could go get those foods and uh, I put all the recipes in Nourishing Traditions. If you can get brains, if you can get sweetbreads, uh, kidneys are a great food. Uh, they need a little bit of a special preparation. Uh, but yeah, these are all uh, great foods. But the, the basic one is liver. And because when it cooks, it becomes soft, it's great for mixing with things. It's yeah. actually not very hard to eat. Good. So we've got fats, we've got broth, we've got liver, we've got other organ meats if you can get them mm -hmm. and then you can figure out how to cook them, which is all in nourishing traditions. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's next? Well, fermented foods. Fermented foods, yeah. And I think you've taken hold of this even more than I have, but you should eat some lacto-fermented, raw lacto-fermented foods every day. Uh, we know how important they are for our digestion. They prevent toxins from getting into the body. Um, they help create nutrients. They create feel-good chemicals too. And you know, if you're not eating um, 
fermented foods every day, uh, you may not feel as bright and cheerful as you could feel. Right. In fact, I, I was just, I mentioned, I talked with Andy yesterday and he pointed out that anybody who eats fermented foods is actually doing terrain therapy. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you're, very you're good. Basically, uh, controlling the micro population. And, you know, we know that we, we did, it's interesting that when people came up with the germ theory, they uh, thought that the human being and all animals, all living beings were sterile. And there were no uh, organisms anywhere from your skin on in. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if, and you if, you, that, if you had them, they were making you sick. Yes. They were attacking you. In fact, even when I was in medical school, and I mean, I'm old, but not that old, we, we still occasionally saw somebody who was sick and we tried to sterilize them, uh, essentially saying they had, they had bacteria. So we usually gave them an antibiotic called chloramphenicol, which caused aplastic anemia, which means their bone marrow disintegrated. Uh, but it was an attempt to uh, sterilize their entire body and the success rate of that. Well, zero, right? It was basically zero, and very few people actually survived that. And, you know, that wasn't that long ago that, that the remnants of we are sterile, you know, now I've heard we have fungus and, and bacteria growing in our eyelids and our nose and our mouth and our hair follicles, basically everywhere. There's no, you know, we're, we're, we're just a... Uh, it's almost like a metaphysical, where are we and where is the yeah. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. I think what the first antibiotic was azulfidine. Yeah. It was azulfidine. And azulfidine often got people better. In fact, I know someone who was cured instantly of uh, irritable bowel syndrome by taking azulfidine. But I don't think it was the antibiotic. I think it was the sulfur. <laughs> We're getting a lot of sulfur from it. One of the people we talk about in our book is Mechnikov, who really was the first one to talk about beneficial bacteria. Nobody talked about that before. And he was a contemporary of Pasteur and Robert um, uh, Koch and everybody. Yeah. And um, he twice tried to commit suicide by poisoning himself. And he didn't succeed because he was eating fermented foods every day. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about sauerkraut, kibas, uh, yogurt, kefir, uh, kimchi, you know. Uh, and also gravlax. Uh, you, can, um, you can ferment uh, meat products too. Uh, one of the things I say in my book, Nourishing Diets, is that fermented foods are universal. There is no culture that doesn't have fermented foods, including the Inuit uh, in the northern climates. They weren't fermenting foods. They were fermenting birds and fish and meat. And, and usually they did it in a stomach of an animal. Yes, yeah, buried it in the ground. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so we got fermented foods. Uh, is there anything else that... Well, I, I just go, going back to the raw milk, um, you need a good source of calcium. Now, calcium is kind of downplayed uh, these days, but you definitely need a good source of calcium. And uh, in Western cultures, that's dairy foods. And the raw dairy foods, that calcium is immediately available. It doesn't go to your arteries. It goes to your bones and, tissue, and teeth, and it's uh, there as needed in your bloodstream. And um, 
if you if, if you don't have dairy products, you need to get make a big effort to get your calcium. In traditional cultures that didn't have dairy, they ground up the bones of birds and animals and added to their stews, their food, and so forth. So uh, calcium really is important, and hopefully you can consume dairy products. Otherwise, you're going to need to do something else. Maybe cook mm -hmm. some eggshells and vinegar <laughs> or make bone broth and then crush up the bones and crush eat those bones. All right, other food types or food categories? Well, there's salt, of salt. course. And you and I know that Steiner called salt a food. Yeah. And of course there's been this whole movement to get us to not eat so much salt, but salt is a really critical component of this electrical system in our bodies. And the uh, salt helps create a different potential on the inside of the outside of the cell. And your body just couldn't work without salt. So that's very important, also important for digestion, um, all sorts of things. And by the way, if you're eating unrefined salt, we need about a teaspoon and a half of salt a day. And if 10% of that is magnesium, you will be getting twice the RDA of magnesium just in your salt. Yeah, and so do you have a a favorite salt that you use? Well, we use Celtic sea salt. Um, I was very pleased. Well, we use it in our cheese making. So when we need salt, we just go to the bag of salt and get the salt. And they actually did a study on their salt to see if there was any uh, microplastic, nanoplastic, uh -huh. because that's yep. been a big concern and they didn't find any. Oh, good. So that's good. So Celtic sea salt is probably it's the one I've always used too. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. But there's other good types of salt. Yeah. Uh, the Himalayan salt and the Hawaiian salt is pink, and that would be a good salt for someone who needs iron. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. What about foods with vitamin C, foods, vegetables, any particular ones, anything people should think about or avoid or not avoid? Well, the best source of vitamin C is your fermented vegetables. So when you make sauerkraut out of cabbage, the amount of vitamin C increases up to tenfold. And I think I got that out of Steinkraus's book. Yeah. Uh, so it certainly increases a lot. It might not be tenfold, but it increases a lot. And uh, this is how people kept from getting scurvy in the winters. They ate fermented vegetables. By the way, scurvy, they used to think it was an infectious disease. Yeah. After all, all these men on the ship got it, right? So mm -hmm. they must have been giving it to each other. And it really took a, a paradigm shift for people to realize that these were deficiencies. Berry berry um, was considered infectious also. Mm -hmm. until they too. Yeah, there's been a lot of those that, you know, which is why I, I say now, because when you, you know, this is a little bit switching subjects, but whenever you say uh, there's a question about the cause of this, people always give you uh, epidemiological observations. Mm -hmm. What about the nursing home? And what about these people? And what about those people? And so what I've learned to say is, uh, trying to be nicer than I used to be, but um, thank you very much. Those are wonderful epidemiological observations, which would make any reasonable person investigate an infectious causation. Just like it was absolutely reasonable with these sailors on the ship with scurvy just to investigate a infectious causation. 
So they did. <laughs> we talk, we discuss a lot of these situations in our book. I think my favorite one is the choir. We're all the, a lot of people in the choir. So here you have a whole bunch of people very close together and they all have cell phones either in their pockets or their handbags, which are under their chairs. You've got a lot of cell phone radiation and believe me, I bought up one of these meters and believe me, your cell phone is the worst. Yeah, you can you can do things to your computer to get it to be okay, but the cell phone is very unsafe. Got lots of cell phones, and maybe there's a radio antenna or a cell phone antenna in the church steeple, and people are close together, doing a lot of breathing, <laughs> and yeah, uh, several get sick, and it seems like it's infectious. Yeah, <laughs> unless you actually dig a little deeper. Right. So we we talk about a number of these situations. Kirkland, Washington is the location of a company that's working on getting 5G inside buildings. And this nursing home where they had all these outbreaks was a mile from the headquarters of this company. And so the question is, was the company trying this out? Yeah. In the buildings uh, nearby, we don't know the answer, but that is a theory that needs to be uh, looked at. My biggest concern is that during this lockdown, They've been putting the 5G into high schools and the kids, and, so, and the reason is so they can track the kids. You know, they're all gonna have a little bracelet with a beeper or something on it so they can keep track of the kids. And I think the, the prediction of this second wave, I think is, is accurate because the kids are gonna go back to high school and be zapped with the, the 5G radiation and a lot of them will get sick. They also right. want to put it in football stadiums. And so you go to the football stadium, everybody has a cell phone, everybody's packed in there and the 5G is on. I hope they have a lot of ambulances outside waiting. Got it, okay. Uh, you talked also, I was very interested in zinc um, because that is you know, reportedly one of the things that helps even in treatment. And uh, one could make the case, I think, as you did, that um, maybe it's a treatment, maybe it isn't. Um, but there, there were certainly not eating the foods that have zinc in it. And I wonder if you could say something about that. Right. This uh, malaria medicine, I, I never know how to pronounce it, hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. Hydroxychloroquine is always given with zinc. Yeah. And it does seem to work in many cases. And I wonder if it's the zinc that they're giving to people. Now, zinc is um, involved in electric transmissions. And I'm not an expert on this, but you know, it's, it's got a role there. But also zinc is a cofactor for vitamin A. Yeah. And vitamin A is just involved in, in everything, even the building of healthy cell membranes. So, uh, we don't get enough zinc in our diets today. Uh, the best sources are red meat and shellfish. Um, if you oysters, like right? oysters, if you can eat oysters once a week. I personally, that's one of the foods that I can't bring myself to eat. And I take uh, desiccated zinc, which I think is a great product. So you do want to have a good source De of zinc. Desiccated zinc or desiccated oysters? Desiccated oyster. Desiccated oysters. From uh, Oyster Max, is that right? That's the one. Yeah, that's a great product. Yeah, yeah, great product. So, yeah, that was the next thing. When you, if we're talking about, uh, I think we've got the food part. Um, if there's, uh, are there supplements and is there guidelines? I mean, I think, 
my guess is when you're talking supplements, it should be food-based, right? So I think this is the new, the future for supplements. Uh, people are beginning to realize most of these supplements, first of all, they're just a single isomer of a vitamin and vitamins always come as a complex of forms. And they're made, mostly made in China. There's a lot of um, impurities in these vitamins and very often they have the opposite effect of the real vitamin. A perfect example is Retin-A for um, acne. Yeah. And it can cause uh, behavior problems. Uh, anger is one of the side effects. And the best thing if you're angry is to take cod liver oil. <laughs> That's my experience. So uh, the, the supplements that you take should be food. And I think these desiccated um, nutrients or desiccated organ meats are great. Cod liver oil, of course, is a food. Um, I would rather see people eat sauerkraut than take probiotic pills. I mean, there's as, ma as many good bacteria in a spoonful of sauerkraut as there is in a whole bottle of probiotics. And we don't know if those probiotics come alive or not. We just right. don't. Or they, they certainly are not from your house or from your community or- Yes, right. Or, you know, it, it's, it's always struck me that the word culture, which is how we make sauerkraut, is actually a description of how human beings organize themselves. Yes, yes. And Oh, I think I said this in nourishing traditions. You can't have culture without cultured food. Right, because so it actually binds wine, cheese, beer, um, you know, caviar. Right. <laughs> These are all cultured foods, and that's what we associate with culture. Yeah, you're actually creating a similarity between people in their mm -hmm. microbiome. That's right. And so they actually then have a, a sympathy and a resonance with each other that. If you're eating, you know, uh, bacteria that somebody made in a lab that he says this is the right bacteria, that has nothing to do with living in Maryland or Maine or anything. Right, or getting local wild honey or local raw milk. I mean, yeah. there's your wonderful treatment for allergies and asthma is the local raw milk. And I even understand that raw milk used to be one of the best sources of vitamin C. Yes, raw milk is a great source of vitamin C. There's even an article published in recent years where this you know, conventional medical person says, without doubt, the great plague of infantile scurvy started when we began to heat treat the milk. Wow, yeah. So yeah. raw milk, raw dairy products are a great source of vitamin C. And so, yeah, because vitamin C is basically heat sensitive. So you really want- Extremely, wanna... it's the most heat sensitive vitamin. So. It's, so you got to eat something raw. raw in your diet, whether yes. it's right. raw, raw milk, uh, raw fruit, uh, and of course the fermented foods I call super raw. Yeah, they're more than raw. Right. And um, for, in the past, you you couldn't get an apple in January <laughs> or berries in March. You had to wait till the summer to get all these vitamin C rich foods. But you had to have vitamin C all year. We don't store it. And the way people got it was through the raw dairy products or the fermented foods. Yeah. Okay. I think we've got most of it here. I, we, you, you know, know Tom, I just want to say our book, The Contagion Myth, uh, a friend of mine started to read it. And she said, you know, Sally, this reads like a mystery book. It's like we're t you're taking us through and there's all these mysteries and they get revealed through the book. So. Uh, we've deliberately kept it simple. We tried not to get too scientific. And there's some real uh, wonderful surprises in the book, especially I'm thinking of the chapter on resonance. Yeah. 
Yeah. And how our DNA resonates with other DNA, other people's DNA. You know, what's really contagious is fear or happiness. These emotions are what are contagious. And it's because of this phenomenon of resonance. Yeah. You know, to me, it's one of those things that all human beings have the experience of resonance. Like if you meet somebody and you fall in love or otherwise hate them or have, that, that's clearly an experience that's A, not physical, you know, in the usual yes. sense. And it, there's, a, there's a kind of resonance going yes, on. Yes, right. No more, probably no particularly different than if you pluck a musical instrument on the note and it's, there's another, you know, A in the next room, it will also resonate and get, you know, louder or softer depending on the resonance or lack thereof. So, and you're literally in tune with yeah, certain people. Tune. It's right. it's literal. It's not just a figure of speech. Right. And there are some people that you are out of tune with. Yes. You don't resonate the same way. Yeah. All right. Is there anything you want to tell people in the last few minutes here? <laughs> I would uh, say um, if you haven't already, get to know the Weston A. Price Foundation, WestonAPrice.org, and our other website, realmilk.com, that helps you find real raw milk and become a member and support the work we do. Um, we have no ties with the industry, with the conventional medicine. Uh, we tell the truth no matter how uh, disruptive or how shocking the truth is. I mean, some of these articles we've published recently have been very shocking to people yeah. based on the comments we're getting. Got it. Okay, anything else? That's all, Tom. Okay, Sally, I so appreciate this. And thank, thank you for having me. Okay, well, take care.